everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Unapologetically Different Podcast with Key and Pierre. This is our seventh episode. <laughs> Turn up. <laughs> um, we are Lucky. excited about sharing this journey with you guys. Lucky number seven. Yes. This is a big deal. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm surprised we made this far. <laughs> to be honest, there were some ups and downs along the way, but we're here. Well, gee, thanks for sharing that. Um, okay, so this documentary, we're going to be speaking primarily about the 13th documentary. It's pretty deep. Um, so the 13th documentary premiered on Netflix. It was directed by Ava DuVernay. I love her, by the way. Um, and it basically illustrates the transformation of the 13th Amendment and how it has affected the black community, preferably communities of color. Um, please do keep in mind the 13th Amendment Constitution declared that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So basically what that means is slavery is okay under the prison industrial complex and in the eyes, um, and it is seen as being, um, slavery is okay in the eyes of the law. So it was abolished in 1865, but through the 13th Amendment and introducing it, it basically kind of was reintroduced and then never really went away, which is very problematic within itself. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of crazy because when you really just break it down, what it's saying there is like slavery technically was abolished, but if you're a criminal, essentially you can be a slave. And yeah. That's, I when I saw this documentary, that kind of was like, oh wow, that was really eye-opening. I didn't realize that people who were incarcerated, I kind of didn't really know a lot of the free labor or close to free labor that they do and just 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 the magnitude of what was going on there but back to the documentary one of the one of the most interesting parts for me was when they mentioned the film of birth of a nation and this is the original birth of a nation filmed by dw griffith that movie had a lot of real ramifications about the way black people and culture was just seen. Essentially, in that movie, for the first time, you see the KKK burning the cross. And it was just a real example of where real life began to mimic cinematic. You got it. Cinematic image. Cinematic image, (laughs) yeah. I just got, like, super tongue-tied there. And I just thought... I thought that was pretty interesting that a lot of that movie was used to create a lot of propaganda. A lot of times you saw people of color in that movie. They were either runaway criminals, rapists. And there was even one crazy scene in the movie that there was a white woman and she was being followed by an escaped convict who was black. And instead of allowing herself to be captured by this guy, who just looked like a savage. She jumped off of a cliff, and I just thought that was pretty crazy how just that those movies, those images, like the cross being burned, it kind of set the tone for a lot of the way black and whites would kind of interact post the Civil War in the United States. So that was pretty interesting. 
Um, so during 1970, the United States prison population was at about 357,000 people. And this was during the Nixon era when crime began to stand, crime began to actually replace race. It, the, during this time, the notion of law and order began to really come to rise. And just hearing that word law and order and then kind of reflecting about this election time that we're going through, honestly, I was super nervous when I was just he had listened to Donald Trump's speeches. Like he was like, I'm the law and order candidate and <laughs> and watching the documentary and then going through going through that election process and seeing all the debates and and the campaigning, I was like, damn, is if Donald Trump wins, I'm nervous for black people. And now he's won. <laughs> and I'm still nervous for black people, if not more. Um and also too, it's like the rhetoric that's kind of repetitive. Because, you know, around that time, um, in the Nixon era, to have the low, the whole terminology about law and order and reinforcing law and order, you got to keep in mind it applies to one specific community, primarily a demographic of black or people of color. Yeah. So it's just very interesting to see how that rhetoric is being repetitive in terms of Donald Trump's presidency, um, even up until the election, even till now, he still kind of uses that. Um, and I just want to get your take on what do you think... Um, in terms of them, how has this concept that was being used control an entire demographic from what you've seen in documentary and as to where we're at now um, as a black man in America? So, it's, it's, it's actually tough. Honestly, for me personally, through my own experiences, I had never really had any problems with the law. I've never really ran into situations like that. But it actually has hit close to home where my younger brother, he actually has he has real negative feelings towards law enforcement. And I kind of understand where he comes from because even at a young age, he was, I think, 13 years old. Me and him were working at the library as interns over the summer. And one day he was coming home from the library. He had a comic book in his back pocket. And he literally got pulled over by the police officers and they patted him down, checked his pockets, and then they're like, oh, it's just a comic book. And I was like, damn, are you kidding me? And that was kind of like his first incident with running into the law. And he was only 13. And he was only 13 years old. And if you've seen a picture of him at 13, he was short, just like me, mm -hmm. cute, adorable little kid. And I'm just like, that's crazy. Like, you really checking him like he looked like he was I don't know I don't know what what they thought yeah and then another experience he actually shared with me was one day he was it was again in the summertime this was I think when he was older in high school mm -hmm. he was getting on the getting onto the subway and he got pulled over because he used his public school metro card and he got written up got a summons and was pretty upset about it. He, he said at the time he didn't really know that he couldn't use it over the weekends. Yeah. And he said that a girl and her mom, who happened to be white, did the exact same thing, and they allowed them to go. She was like, she didn't know she's with her mom, and they let her go, but my brother was alone and got written up. So, again... For me personally, I haven't had negative experiences with police or law enforcement. 
but I do have friends who have, oh, damn. It just kind of hit me really quickly. What? Yeah, I guess I kind of, I don't know if I was, like, kind of blocking it out, but. Well, share it. So, I guess. Your eyes just lit up just now, yeah, so it has no, to be something crazy. Yeah, because it, it really just bounced into my head. So, when I started driving around, like, 16, 17 years old. Yeah. I used to drive all the time with my dad or with my mom, and I'd never gotten pulled over once, mm-hmm. like when I was learning to drive or going to the supermarket or going to school. But the first time me and my friends actually took the car out to go to a party, I think we were going to like Sheepshead Bay or something. Literally that night we got pulled over, and it was... Honestly, we didn't do anything wrong. We weren't speeding. We weren't like switching the lanes or doing anything crazy. No, we just mm-hmm. got pulled over. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I was nervous, not gonna lie. Everything went smoothly. They, the officer let us go. But then it actually happened, I would say three or four times after that, like on a regular basis. You were getting pulled over frequently. When, only when there was me and all my friends and we were heading out, going okay. out at night to parties. So it got to the point where literally we were in the car. I would be like, hey, everyone take off your hats. Everyone that cool. Let's just, I don't want any hats or hoodies on in the car. And I was saying it as a joke, but in my experience, like we got pulled over when there were multiple black males in the car. So yeah, yeah that just kind of came back. And that's pretty common, like, you know, in terms of black men being pulled over at higher rates. I mean, there's black women too, but I do think that the numbers may significantly be increased for black men in terms of your appearance and what you wear and the whole like stop and frisk thing that was very common in New York, which thankfully it's actually been outlawed now. But I always question, like, I haven't had an incident where I've been stopped frequently by cops, but I always question if I was a black man put in that position and being stopped periodically or frequently for that matter in a car or whatever, how would I react to that? Especially being patted down and assuming that I'm partaking in criminal activity or I may have some type of substance on me or a weapon. um, When in fact, that's not even the case. And it happens a lot to black men. I mean, it happens to men of color, but primarily black men. And it's just something that I always kind of think about. And it's funny to me, not funny, actually, more on a serious note, Watching the documentary and see how it resonates to what's so common now mm-hmm. in terms of the Nixon era and then also like the Reagan era. And one of the things that really stood out to me primarily within this documentary was when they talked about the Southern strategy that was born through um, during the Nixon era. And basically, um, his advisor, John Ehrlichman, had stated that during the um, Nixon campaign in 1968, um, the Nixon White House had two enemies. It was the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Now, I want to deconstruct some of the things that he said because it's very valid and it's still very prevalent as to what's going on in the black community now. He speaks around disrupting a black community by criminalizing them to be perceived as drug addicts and dealers. Check. That's been going on back 
in that time Erin is still happening now yeah. and in terms of how black people are perceived through the media also he talks about arrest their leaders and raid their homes Angela Davis check Fred Hampton check Asada Shakur check um, vilify them night after night on the evening news Trayvon Martin check Mike Brown check Sandra Bland check so I just thought it's really interesting how something in, in regards to the commentary that he made around a Nixon era and how they try to portray black people in a negative light has been very common throughout history. And it's still very, um, as I stated before, it's still prevalent now. And you see that a lot has not changed. And even when lies are being told about black people being perceived as drug dealers, rapists, or savages for that matter, or super predators, which was also mentioned in later years by Hillary Clinton, we're, we're still kind of within that marginalized group and we're still being identified as such. So I just find it to be, it's sad to me. And then also tied back to you and your um, friends driving in the car, mm -hmm. taking off the hoodies and the hats and how that kind of equates to how black people or black males are looked in terms of being thugs and stuff like that. And it kind of feeds into the respectability politics of how one should carry themselves, yeah. how you should dress yourself, which I think is... It's to me, it's bothersome because it's like it's frustrating being a black person in America as it is. But the fact that you have to rethink a lot of things that you do and how you carry yourself and the way you act because you don't want to be perceived a certain way, which at the end of the day, for those who are not in the sunken place, no matter how <laughs> you may change your attire, how you look, you're still going to be perceived in a negative light because you're black. So, uh, first by some, then opposed to others. But I just kind of wanted to put that out there in terms of what's going on now and a lot of the valid points that his advisor did say and how this is still happening till this day. I think, going back to what you just said now about just like the super predators or dressing a certain way, I feel like I'm loving what I'm seeing nowadays in terms of just more black TV shows on television, oh, yes. black movies, like... And it's different genres, too. Right. Yeah. And I think the way to, like, counteract a lot of this negative media portrayal of black people is actually just making making black people more human for people that don't see them. Like, I have a friend who's from Germany, and before she came to the United States, she had never seen a black person ever. So it's not like she had any real experience with them. All she had was what she saw in movies, yeah. TV shows, and the media. And that's why I just love what's going on like with films like Hidden Figures or... And it's a lot of shows. Yeah, Blackish. Yeah. Scandal. Like you're getting to see black characters in different roles and this is just making them more human for people who don't normally get to interact with them. And I think that's like... I think that's the key to actually making that shift because when there's unfamiliar, unfamiliar, uh, I'm like super tongue tied today. <laughs> I feel like unfamiliarity you got it. breeds contempt. And when you don't understand or know something, you, a lot of times with humans, we just naturally go to, I don't like that or I don't trust that. But then when you add on top of that, the negative imagery and portrayal, that just makes it even worse. So I feel like we're taking steps to actually rewriting that script, and I think that's awesome. So that's that's a good good thing that I see going on right now. So, as of 1980, the U.S. prison population jumped up to about 513,000 
from 357,000 in 1970. So that's a pretty significant jump in about 10 years. And during the 1980s, the Reagan era turned Nixon's term, the war on drugs, into actual war on drugs, but it became the war on blacks. And that kind of really, that's one of the things that actually really bothers me because I have friends of all, all races, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. The out of the United Nation of friends, <laughs> all ethnic groups. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I have friends who all do drugs. I know. Pe- I've worked with people throughout all my careers mm-hmm. who have done drugs, and. But I just see the black community just getting vilified, getting time in jail, and just just actually suffering from doing things that other races are doing as well. And that's where that's kind of where I don't want to say my beef is, but that's kind of where my beef is. Like it's not fair that the black community oftentimes is basically suffering for things that other people are doing as well. Like, to be honest, if stop and frisk was going on, but at an even clip amongst all ethnic groups, then you could say, hey, this is something we're doing to try to actually try to actually stop crime. But it doesn't happen that way. Like, I, actually, I had a conversation with a friend. He was Russian, and... He said, isn't stop and frisk when um, they pull you over for, like, driving and they ask you to step out of the car you if know. you did some throw? I'm like, walking and they stop you. Right. And I'm like, no, stop and frisk is when you're walking along the street and you could fit a description or for whatever reason the officer may think you're up to something. They can literally stop you, pat down all your pockets, check everything on you. And it's, it's borderline humiliation. Yeah, Because I think if you're walking on the street and, you know, I haven't been stopped by a cop in that, you know, in that way or anything like that. And I'm I'm going to keep it 100 with you. I'm happy I'm not because I, you know how I am. <laughs> like, it will be a situation. Like, why yeah. are you stopping me? What did I do wrong? And I know my rights. So yeah. I need to know what description do I fit? What drugs do I look like I'm carrying? You know what I'm saying? But what bothers me with that, too, is, like, you could be walking, and it's humiliating because if you have a group of people walking past you and you're completely innocent, they're going to already perceive you as a criminal because they're going to be like, why are they stopping that person? They're not going to think the officer's in the wrong because officers are wrong. Are you serious? Does that happen? They kill people for no reason? Really? Like, they actually lock people up for no apparent reason? Like, why would they ever do anything in the wrong? You know what I'm saying? They're perfect in a lot of people's eyes and how they're being perceived as such because they're supposed to protect and serve the community. So when you stop in someone, I just think it's very humiliating. And I've seen that. I've seen black men being stopped. I remember when I was on a train, it was by 180th Street. I'm from the Bronx. And um, shout out to my people from the Bronx, the Boogie Down. And I remember <laughs> the cops was chasing this black dude through the train. He was running through the, the um he was running through the, the um the cars. They stopped the train at 180th. They took him out. They, four of them, picked him up and bodied him on the floor. I don't know what he did. You know what I'm saying? He probably would have been innocent. I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if he is. 
And he was like, help or whatever. And I'm looking like, is there a need for y'all to be doing that? And one of them, the cop, I was like, I was like, is there a need for you to be treating him like that? And she was like, back up, you know, she was all being author authoritative or whatever the case may be. But I was just kind of like, that's unnecessary. You got all of these people on this platform. You going to pick him up and body him. It's for y'all. Y'all got guns. He ain't got nothing. Just clothes on. What is he going to do? He can't run nowhere unless he's going to go on the tracks and die. So what was the premise of doing all There's kids out there. There's families out there. It just it just looks so disgusting and it's humiliating. And then, so when you tie back to stop and frisk and how that originated and how that's being formulated in our communities, it really bothers me. But also another thing to kind of tie back to this documentary, um, you know, watching the whole epidemic around crack and cocaine and crack was very prevalent within the black community and cocaine instead of was in the suburbs. I've always gotten the two switched up. I'm like, I don't know what's because I really don't. I, I, you know, I'm not knocking anybody or whatever and throwing shade. Stay away from drugs. I, school. Basically, but I, I was just like, okay, so to kind of get the historical context in terms of how certain um, neighborhoods or communities were being treated, and then, you know, if the crack was in the black community, of course, a lot of them would be stopped and arrested, and if not, they'll do way more time that a person in the suburbs would be caught with cocaine. Wait, but. I see where you're going with this, and I just want to say before we move forward with that point is, I don't think every single police officer is bad. I don't. No, think, I don't think that. And then, with that being said, I don't think you can only just blame police officers. I feel like it's easy to just point the blame at them because they are the front line. But at the end of the day, these are lawmakers who are creating the laws and creating the rules that these officers are being told to enforce. And I think to go back to what you're saying about the crack versus cocaine, crack was in the black and Hispanic communities while cocaine was more in the white communities. And crack was is much cheaper to purchase than cocaine is to purchase. Yeah. <clears throat> but unjustly, you get much more time for crack than you do for cocaine. And I, I think that just right there, that like disparity is where it goes back to just the lawmaking and just being unjust. Because again, I know I know kids who take coke. Like like that's their thing. Like they're going out, they're partying, they're taking coke. But if there were police officers in the Lower East Side just stopping frisking people randomly, going into bars and stuff, they'd be finding weed, coke and other drugs on them all the time, but that doesn't happen. And again, That doesn't happen. And I think, you know, to tie to your point, two things, and I just want to put it out there, I don't think all cops are bad. Um, I don't want people to walk away from this podcast making an assumption, oh, she's being OD radical and she presumed cops as being bad. I do not think all of them are bad, but I do think there are bad cops among the good ones, and we need to address them. I do believe that there are lawmakers that put things into place, and I also believe that these bad cops tend to over-manipulate the law in some aspects to benefit their agenda. And I definitely think a lot of them tend to exercise their power aggressively yeah. for whatever reasons they may have about a particular group of demographics. So I want to tie it into that. I think that it, to speak to the point about stopping the Lower East Side is valid. Go into these bars and you see, you know, you'll see probably white people partaking in these drugs and I don't see them getting locked up. I remember when I went to college, I went to Syracuse University and... I went to a lot of you want to call the black parties, which is primarily by the fraternities, black fraternities or sororities or whatever the case may be, regular house parties or whatever. Cops are always there expecting something to happen. But when you go to these white fraternity parties, which I've been to, I never not see one cop in sight. 
I never see those those parties get shut down. And they have drugs, plethora of drugs going on, and they doing all kinds of shenanigans in there. But you don't have cops shutting down their parties. But in the black parties, we know so as soon as the music went up past a certain value, it went from eleven to twelve. Like it, oh oh, we got it, we got to shut it down. And I was just like, so what does that say? Like you expect trouble when it's a group of us. You expect something bad or negative to happen. But then it's like you give priority in terms of, you know, in, in regards to white people as far as, okay, it's okay, they're allowed to be getting away with stuff. And with the documentary, what I noticed was like, white people was caught with cocaine, they get a slap on the wrist. But black person in terms of crack, if they even had it with the, at their disposal, they're doing a lot of time in jail. And imagine that on your record. You think you want to come out and get a job? Bad enough you black and you live in an urban community or whatever your income may be. Then on top of that, you have a charge on you. You've been in jail for years. And then on top of that, how can you even get a job outside of that? Yeah. So that's something that I thought that was really a great, intricate piece that was mentioned in the documentary. And I'm glad that they, they had time to kind of tease it out. And also, in 1990, during um, George Bush senior presidency, the U.S. prison population was 1,179,200 inmates. Now, around this time, uh, for him to winning the election, what he did as a strategic method that was mentioned in the documentary was that he was instilling fear of implicitly stating that black men was basically a problem and instilling fear around black men. And that was a commonality during the Nixon and Reagan era. And it's interesting how that has worked in terms of winning the vote because it instilled fear about how black men are being perceived in terms of in a negative light and also in a stereotypes that was following them throughout the years and how men like him in power was able to win presidency, which I, I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of how they linked it through different presidencies and how the rhetoric that was used, that was very powerful terminology and what they used during the election, even Trump as well, law and order. We need to control the community, primarily the black community. We need to instill um, stop and frisk again, how those rhetoric are being used repetitively in order for them to win the election and how it has worked. Just one thing I want to just be clear. He never really said the black community, but they pretty much were just the word criminal and it essentially referred to black men or in the black community, that word criminal. Because at the end of the day, the prison industrial system is primarily filled with black and Latino men. And I just wanted to point that out, that they never actually said, he never had to use the word black men, but the criminal mixed with just the media, the people that you're seeing doing the raping and the robbing. and Well, technically, during his time, it was in a documentary because there was a guy at the time, I think his name was Willie Ford. We have to go back and check. He was... Um, classified as a rapist mm -hmm. and he used that because his opponent at the time during the election was basically giving out he will he had a system put in place where you'll be in prison and then you have weekend passes mm -hmm. the Bush used that on the flip side George Bush senior to say that should not be happening and yeah. also he utilized that this black man that was being viewed as a rapist he kind of used that imagery for him to win the election as saying that this is how this man is being characterized along with other black men within his category. So he kind of used it. That's why I said implicitly. He kind of used it towards his benefit. And in turn, that's why that stereotype has been following us for years to come. 
and even prior to him, Nixon and Reagan. I see where you're getting at. Like, it wasn't explicit, but that's why I said it was implicit in terms of what he was doing during his presidency and what has worked for him. Yeah. So, um, but I do appreciate you pointing out that fact, but also that he doesn't necessarily have to distinctly say, you know, this whole demographic, but it was implied during that time in that era. Yeah, I actually had an experience with that, too. Um, I remember... I was hanging out in the city. This was maybe like three or four years ago. I was hanging out in the city. I saw a girl. I thought she was cute. And I went up to her to, to introduce myself and see if I get to know her. She literally... Oh, she was a white woman. Okay. She literally looked at me, clutched her purse, and took two steps back. And I was just like, what the hell is going on right now? And so, yeah, I think that kind of just... That just shows like... I you see how I dress, you know me. I'm like one of the nicest, sweetest people there is out there. It goes back to respectability respectability politics. You have to dress a certain way. Not saying that you do strategically, but you don't come off dressed in terms of like, you know, baggy pants, your your underwear showing and stuff like that. So yeah, I do know what you're saying. And I was like it clearly was one thing. It was the fact that I was black. She didn't say that, but I just felt those vibes coming from her. And I kind of feel like the way they were implicitly impl- implicitly describing black men as criminal, the same way they released the Willie Ford photo to say these are the people that are going to get weekend visits out of the prison. Like, do you really want these people out there? So, yeah, I just I just wanted to share that experience because... But you're lucky she caught your purse and walked away because you would have been in a sunken place. Keep that in mind. <laughs> she probably would have did a brain operation on you. Crazy. <laughs> that would have been your ass. I'm saying. Think about it. It's always a silver lining, honey. But it's unfortunate that happens that, you know, black men come around, you feel the need to clutch your, your bag or you feel in fear. And Obama did speak about that at one point, subsequent Trayvon Martin death. He spoke about it. You know, prior to his presidency, he remembered being around a white woman in the elevator. She was in fear of her life and she was clutching her bag. So that's something that's a real commonality among black men, which is really sad. Yeah. And also to tie it back to bring it back to the documentary, primarily to talk, it talked about Bill Clinton presidency, which I thought it, it gave a lot of background and information about him signing the um the federal crime bill. That was really that was a really big issue because it ties into he basically he Clinton sorry introduced the 1994 federal crime bill and this really played a huge part as to why there's so many black and Hispanic men in in prison industrial complex now because it was very restrictive and it had basically destroyed the community and I'm glad that the documentary went into that in great detail because we need to speak about where we're currently at as a community in terms of single parent household how come families are ripped apart. Why is it that black and brown men are doing excessive amount of time in jail for my, like minor crimes or minor offenses and opposed to their white counterparts? And, you know, when this bill was signed and it was put into place, it has a really a dramatic effect into our communities. And what got me, well, what I found was interesting was during the election, she did, you know, speak about that and talked about how her husband um, ended up apologizing about it. He did apologize about it recently in 2015 and I don't know I seen when he apologized and I watched it and I just thought wow sorry like to me that wasn't enough yeah with what's going on now because of you inputting this bill and putting it into full force a whole demographic is destroyed so as a little a little apology like I'm sorry to me just wasn't enough what did you think about that 
Um, I guess I feel like it wasn't enough, but I really don't know what I, I expected him to do. His pregnancy was over. This was almost 20 years ago. The, I think the fact that they're actually having this conversation, though, is is a, a big deal. Like, the fact that during the campaign for Hillary versus Trump, that the the phrase systematic racism was even brought up during the debate, I just thought that was huge. The fact that, that something like that is getting brought to the forefront. Because, to be honest, I didn't... Me, personally, as a black male, I feel like I kind of was oblivious to a lot of the systematic racism that's that's going on right now and i didn't really understand really fully understand it and watching are you oblivious to it because you don't know it explicitly to kind of point it out or are you oblivious to it because you try not to feed into it um i guess a well before because before when i would say over the past two years, I kind of really get it, got present to... Oh, you woke up? Yeah, basically. Okay. I cut out of the mm-hmm. second place. <laughs> Welcome. I'm back. Welcome. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, like I said, I had never really dealt with racism. I've always gotten along well with everybody. I have friends of all types. and You haven't dealt with the racism because you probably wasn't able to distinguish what it was explicitly. No, that's not it. Because I've dealt... I've had situations where there was racism involved, but those... So the cop pulling you over wasn't an act of racism? It was. Well, I can't say that it was an act of racism that he pulled me over. I'm not... I don't want to say that, but... Well, the fact that you were pulled over repetitively... Yeah, I... Definitely. Do you think it's a form of it? Yes. Okay. Don't be... I'm just saying. Just keep it on it. Don't (laughs) be shy about it. This is a real conversation. Um, Our viewers are listening. <laughs> but I guess I, I've been actually learning like, through documentaries like 13th how actual laws have been in place and have been kind of crippling to the black community. And I didn't really understand a lot of a lot of that. And yeah, it's, I guess yeah, I was definitely not woke to a lot of this. I knew there was racism. I knew it existed. But the actual laws around it and things being built right into the system, that kind of, I really got awakened to that part of it. That was new racism existed. That was, that was never like, I never was living in fairy tale world, but I didn't, I didn't know how deep it ran. And then with different documentaries like this, I'm, I'm actually just constantly learning more and more. But I think the best thing, the only thing you can do is really gain that awareness. If you don't understand what's going on, you can't actually effectively change the situation so i feel like i'm taking those steps and learning and understanding everything that's going on around me why things are they are why things are the way they are how it was in the past and how the past actually has it's creating our future so yeah damn i don't know just lost my but don't you think it's kind of interesting that um more of a statement than a question i think it's interesting that during Hillary Clinton's election, um, she spoke about kind of signifying how Black Lives Matter, but you and your husband played a part in signing this bill that yeah. basically destroyed our community. And I just felt like the apology wasn't sufficient. Like you said, what could he have done? I don't know. Um, more than that. 
You know, like you destroy the community and we're still, we're crippling. Like we're not completely, you know, solidified and we still have our issues and police brutality is still happening at high rates. And a lot of us are still in the prison industrial complex for crimes that are minor offenses that we should not be in there for. And I just think that it's really unfortunate that, you know, now when she was running, it was like, oh, black lives matter. Black lives are important. We need to kind of systematic racism. We need to speak about this. But I did sign this bill and played a part in it that destroyed your community. I just expect a little bit more than an apology. And when I seen his apology and then I felt like he was trying to justify what he did, I was just like, no, like, it's not okay. You know, and the laws that was put in place at that time and this bill being signed, it still has detrimental effects. And I want to know what reforms are happening at higher rates and quickly to kind of rectify those situations. You know what I'm saying? And it really bothers me. And I thought that was like an intricate part of the documentary. I really enjoyed this documentary. I thought that it provided so much information. There were times I was stopping it, replaying certain parts. It really stuck with me. So in 2000, the U.S. prison population jumped up to 2,015,300 inmates. And then as early as 2014, it was up to 2,306,000. So I don't know if you guys have been following those numbers, but it's jumped from 300,000 in the 70s to 2 million, 2 million plus in about 40, 50 years. And the United States has been around for much longer than that. <laughs> but the prison system actually growing and becoming a business kind of is something, a, a recent phenomenon. And as of right now, I just don't, I haven't seen anything that's going to change that. And I think that's a good point that you bring up. Like, what's the next step to actually change this? To get out of the the business of incarcerating black and Latino men. And um, when you said in documenting in terms of stuff, the laws that were put in place and how did that stick with you in terms of, you know, um, how you got a better understanding of it too. You want to talk about Alec? Because <laughs> that part was crazy to me. Yeah, that, that probably was the most like holy shit part to me in the entire documentary. I think I re- re- like rewind it like twice. I was like, hold on. Like this is not, I couldn't believe it. So for those who don't know, Alex stands for the American Leg- Legislative Exchange Council. And it's essentially a private club composed of politicians and corporations. It's a political lobbying group that write laws and essentially gives them to Republicans. And some corporations that were affiliated with Alex are Walmart, State Farm, AT&T, and Verizon. And so essentially, Alex would have a group of lawyers basically writing up laws that would actually benefit the members of the group. So as I was watching the documentary, I was kind of like, I don't get it. Like, Alex corporate sponsors and lawmakers I but what what does it have to do with the documentary and it just I feel like it's so crazy like for people who believe in like conspiracy theories like I feel like this is kind of like the conspiracy theory but just like in real life (laughs) um 
So essentially, Alec would write laws. Had Alec had the power to write up bills to give to Republicans to bring into the office and eventually pass them and become laws. And so if they had laws like, the hypothetically, the federal crime bill, let's say it was an Alec law, that law would increase the number of black and Latino men in jails. Then these men, essentially, because of the 13th, the 13th Amendment, would be in servitude. They would be working in these prisons. They would be prisons. slaves. Just say that. Working in these prisons. They slaves. Working in these prisons for free. Oh, you want to be politically correct now? <laughs> okay, they slaves, honey. Continue. Working in the prisons for little to no money. And actually... Practically picking cotton, but other things. And they're actually creating and creating goods for people. Like, the document talked about how there are people in the prisons making panties making tables, making computers, and companies like Walmart, who were part of Alec, but eventually came out. And I'll, I'll let you touch a little bit more on that. But they actually left the organization. They would be benefiting because these prison industries are growing. They're getting free labor. So they're able to create these goods for dirt cheap prices. And then they're actually able to take them and then sell them back to the consumer. So... If you are one of these corporations that were in in Alec, they're writing laws to basically help your bottom line. And I'm like, damn. Honestly, it's freaking ingenious, but... It's ingenious, but it's scary. It is. Because, you know, when you think about how Alec is created through corporations and politicians coming together and creating these laws, you got to think of, think of the kind of people that's in this position of power. And then on top of that, for you to create these laws... And, you know, what I noticed in the documentary, which I thought was very interesting, is that some politicians that would present some of these laws, like if they were to write it up or draft it up, it will be on an ALEC letterhead. And they'll submit it to try to get the law passed. And then when they double check it, they realize this law was created through ALEC organization. It wasn't really created by that particular politician. And some politicians got in trouble for that. So it then ties back into, is this really the law that you kind of came up with, or this is derived from Alec and they pass it through you? And in terms, it shows their relationship with Alec. So they create these laws, and then these prison systems are practically overpopulated with people, because if we're at a 2 million in 2014, you could just get an idea of how overpopulated these prison industrial complexes are. And then they're profiting. You have these prisoners working as slaves for these corporations, and they're getting a profit from it. They're barely making anything. And what kills me is that they're working for these corporations in jail. It's fine for them to work for them in jail, but when they get out, they can't even apply for them because they're not going to take them with, depending on what kind of charge they have on their record, which if they backtrack, if they actually backtrack in their employment history in prison, they worked for your company. <laughs> so it's like, now you out of jail, Walmart ain't going to hire you. But when you was in prison, you were qualified, more than qualified to work for free. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting dynamic, but I thought how Alec kind of came about was through the Trayvon Martin case, because as we all know, George Zimmerman used Stand Your Ground as his defense in regards to killing Trayvon Martin, and come to find out that law that was kind of put in place and instilled in several states throughout the U.S., it was derived from Alec. So, you know, it's it's crazy to me as to the information that was compiled within this documentary and how all of it just kind of came together. And also through ALEC, the SB 107 was another law which was created 
which allowed police to stop anyone that looked like an immigrant. Kind of sound like stop or frisk to me. Don't it? Just a little bit. Um, and it also enforced for police departments to have a lot of power. That's why, you know, during a lot of these protests, you see like small police um, stations or whatever the case may be having like military gear. Like, where are you going with grenades and all of this if we just protested in the street? Like, is that necessary? And that was the ride through Alec. So I thought that was really crazy to me how that, how everything just kind of tied in together and how it comes together. And it just plays a part of the cycle that continues. Yeah. And we're, we're not actually getting to the surface of some of these things. It's so quick to say, well, if you get stopped and frisked, or George Zimmerman, you stand his ground as a defense. Well, you know, Trayvon Martin should have been walking in a hoodie. He shouldn't have been walking in that area. Well, it was his vicinity. It was his neighborhood. He had a Skittle and an Arizona bottle. That warrants someone to get shot and killed by a neighborhood watchman that wasn't really the neighborhood watchman. He was just watching a poor boy because he was black with a hoodie on his head. And in turn, he used stand your ground as a defense, and he got off. Found not guilty. And he's been guilty from that time and ever since. Subsequent that incident, because he's in jail left and right, and he on the news left and right for stuff that he's doing. So to me, it's just so interesting how these how these systems kind of come together and they intersect and how what the bottom line is, the black community and urban communities are getting affected and it's and it's how we're currently being destroyed and ripped apart. You know what I'm saying? How can you tell black and brown boys and girls, you could be anything you want to be when you grow up because you had a black president in office, which may not happen again. Lord knows if it does. How can you say to the younger generation, you know, be free with how you are and, you know, you could be anything you put your mind to, but when they walk out their houses, you know, they're being perceived as criminals and they're falling in the line of being stereotypes, primarily black boys and men being stopped and targeted and black girls too and black women because the numbers are increasing among them as well. I just really appreciate this documentary for highlighting those significant points and facts that, like you said before, they're hidden. Like, I would have never known about Alec if it wasn't because of the Trayvon Martin case. Yeah. It's sad that he had to die, practically become a martyr for us to find these things out and how these corporations are still in- affiliated with them. And these corporations are like Walmart in urban communities and urban neighborhoods where people like us are going to go shop. So, you know, to continue the cycle that you're practically paying a part in destroying our community, but then we're still your customers. Yeah. We're keeping your lights on. So, again, my thing always is what's the answer? Like, what are solutions and things that people can do to make a difference and actually change change the trajectory? Well, before you get to that, before you, because I know where you're going with it. Also, towards the end of the documentary, I thought it was important because they mentioned that, you know, now that's going on with black men being killed and black women and it being televised, um... Should we continue to show that? Because it's, it's kind of modern-day lynching. You know, it's like similar to when Emmett Till was alive. There wasn't recordings then. There wasn't videos of what happened. I mean, his body was left and you kind of, you knew what happened to him, you know, through forensic evidence and everything of that sort. But now, you know, when you have incidents like the Eric Garner, you have Oscar Grant, you have Freddie Gray, you have Laquan McDonald, you have Philando Castile and Sandra Bland, when these cases are prevalent, through the media and they're being shown repetitively it's a discussion of should they be shown or shouldn't they be shown and i want to get your take on it i think they should still be shown um i really don't like to see them they circulate a lot what 
I think one of the last ones that really got to me was a Philando Castile one in Alton Sterling. And I was like, I can't. I, it took me forever to watch them. I was like, I don't even want to watch it. But I had to see it. And I seen it and I was just like, I was in awe. But I knew what the end result was going to be anyway and how it, they was going to make those men look in a negative light and try to stereotype them in a certain way. And I just want to think, do you think it still should be circulating? Like, is it, is it, pre should not, should it still be circulating? And if so, does it provoke a conversation that we need to have? Um, I think it definitely provokes a conversation. But in terms of, should it be circulated? I honestly, I don't know. I, I don't see why it shouldn't be. If there, if people are getting unjustly killed, I don't see why you wouldn't have that conversation, whether it's a black person or in anybody. So I feel like if there just if there's something wrong with the system and the way police are handling things or just the things that are going on in prisons that aren't just, I think it definitely should be discussed because that's the only way you're going to get real reform and real change. So if I had to say a definitive yes or no, I would say yes. I feel like we need to see that to see what's going on, to actually have a conversation and actually, but then again, what's the next step? Like, how are we going to make a change and when are things going to become different instead of just keep recycling the same story over and over and over with just a different name each time like when are we gonna actually try to make a change change i think in terms of making a change um and also because we're about to end up tie up our episode we need to have the proper lawmakers and politicians put in office that speak on behalf of the people in the community and actually represents the community uh -huh. i don't want someone in the suburbs representing me i'm not from the suburbs i wasn't born i wasn't raised there. i may have lived there from time or two but I'm not from there. I want someone who's in my community who was born and raised and know the dynamics of what's going on to actually represent me. I don't want you to do a bait and switch and say, for you to win my vote, tell me what your problem is. I'm going to come up with a solution. I'm going to fight your battle. And when you get my vote and you win, you have a completely different agenda put in line that I was not even aware of. Yeah. Or you focusing on other issues that wasn't prevalent when you were talking to me about getting my vote. And I think that's the problem. I think people don't have faith in politicians. I'm going to keep it 100 with you. I don't really have faith in some of them because I'm like, yeah, I say y'all going to do this, but y'all not really making much changes. I'm sick and tired of every year black men or women and transgender women are getting killed and murdered either primarily through police brutality and there's nothing being done. When we have a conversation around these topics, it becomes them against us. And it's not that. I'm not looking at all cops as bad, but we need to address the bad ones that exist and the ones that are taking people lives and get to go home at the end of the day and have a salad or a sandwich with their family and you just destroy the whole other family that got to move on past the tragedy than you to invoke. So to me, I think we need to have politicians who are speaking on our behalf that actually care to make a difference. We need to have our community leaders on the ground doing grassroots work. We need to also make sure we have proper community um, activities put in place for our younger generation so that they're not on the street selling M&Ms and whatnot on a two train, on the five train. You should be in some after-school program getting tutoring lessons. Your, your focus should not be you getting money. And if your focus is you getting money because of your home situation, we need to talk about that. And we need to deconstruct that. You know, at 12 years old, 13, do you really need two, $300 in your pocket during a week? What are you doing with that kind of money? 
And if so, in your home, and then we need to talk about the family structure too and how we could work on that. There's a lot of divide within our communities and I think it requires a lot of work and it goes beneath the surface of what's going on. But I really think that we do need to have our, we need to hold them accountable. We need to have our community members doing more for the community and not just being in a spotlight for the sake of getting a little, you know, a little shine on social media. You actually need to be for the community. And I think that we need to enforce politicians in place that are actually going to stand for us. I don't know where we stand now with Trump is in office because he kind of sets the tone and we already seen what his rhetoric is like as we can through previous presidents like Nixon and Reagan and, and George Sr. Bush. It's kind of the same rhetoric he has. I'm not sure what kind of hope and faith we're going to have with him in office because I had a lot more hope with Obama. But I guess we do have to be a little bit more optimistic on that. What about you? Mm, I think the biggest word there is community. <clears throat> so as you were saying that, one of the biggest things that um, went through my head was Martin Luther King and how back then during the Civil Rights Movement, they the black community was very strong united and kind of realized there was a common goal that they wanted because like they say when you're united you're strong but when you're broken apart and split up you're easily taken advantage of so i think just things like light skin versus dark skin i feel like that's one of the dumbest things ever like we're all people of color like it shouldn't be like team light skin team dark skin and then also... But you know that ties into the Willie Lynch law that was kind of put in place around slavery to deconstruct our communities and kind of separate and divide us. And it wasn't created by us. It was created by a white man and it was put in place and it did its damage because look where we're at now. But like you said, it's a very valid point. But look how many years ago that was instilled and look how of, uh, much of an effect it has on our community. And then... I, so. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, because I didn't, I didn't even know about that yeah. law, so I'm going to have to actually look into that, too. But to add to that, just that awareness, like, you need to understand how things are the way they are through documentaries like this and through reading and just getting a real understanding of how do we get to this point, because this didn't just happen in a vacuum. This is a series of events that got to this point. And back to, like, the Martin Luther King... Um, topic when they had the montgomery bus uh strikes everyone in the community no one took the buses and that pretty much crippled the economy for for that industry and, and capitalism yes mm -hmm. and i think because they were united you saw old women young kids from toddlers to elderly just everybody was taking part in those strikes and that showed that they were strong, they united, and it was affecting people's pockets. And I think that's where you really affect change when you're affecting the cash flow for people. So, like, when you said where companies like Walmart were a part of Alec, they were actually capitalizing from black and Latino labor in these the prison system, but then we're out there supporting it. I think we need to really be conscious about where our money's going and who we're supporting because... But you think we really going to all strike? Because even with the whole, and you know, in the uproar about, you know, all these police killings, we was on that. Like, we need to do a blackout, and that was for a day. And nobody was really doing a blackout. But like that, But that's what I'm saying, that it comes to being united. Because if you're not united, 
and there's like 70% of the people like, I'm not dealing with that. You're not affecting anyone that much. But if the black community has a lot of buying power and we spend a lot of money, and that's something that kind of, it's kind of, it really is, weighs on me heavy. Like where I see the in the Jewish community, for example, or the Chinese community, a lot of times their money is kept in their community and they 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 circulated amongst themselves before it really goes out into other communities. But for us, a lot of people don't support black businesses. So again, it goes back to that community. Are they supported when it's in like, you know, in terms of the police killing. So that's when it was like in terms of high numbers, people was like join black banks and stuff like that. But I do get your point. I think that's true. I wish we would come together more as a community and We'll just shut it down and say, you know, we're not going to shop at Walmart. You're part of Alec? Cool. We're not going to shop there anymore. And let's see what happens with that. And also for all the other corporations that are affiliated with it. I'm not sure if we're there yet as a community, but I would love it if we can get there to that point and see how much power we actually have and how much difference that actually makes. And I guess my last point, I think to get to that point, we need leaders. We need people to actually step up and put themselves at issue and actually take a stand for what they know is right and speak up about it. But that's the thing, though. I get that we need leaders, but it, it, I guess there's levels to leadership. Because back in the day with the Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you had black men who were willing and ready. And even black women as, as well. Yeah. You know, Angela Davis. Shout out to Angela Davis. Um, You had black women and men at that time that were willing to fight the good fight, and they would put their bodies on the line for it. Yeah. We need leaders now. I don't know about that. Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't think we have leaders now that are willing to do the same thing. And and then again it goes back to do do I really have to die for um for change to be made? But in in these cases, it, unfortunately this is what happened. I think history shows that is kind of what has to happen. Yeah. When you say it that way, that's Cuz how many people are going to be willing to want to put their life on the line? to change something, to make a law or to put put a law in place or to instill it. Like, a lot of these people we've lost recently over the years through police brutality, it wasn't a choice. It's not like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, it was, they died and it just happened and in, 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 in essence, they became a martyr through the situation and we're learning things. Like, dude, we didn't know about Alec unless the Trayvon Martin didn't happen. It's unfortunate this boy had to die for us to learn about the laws that are put in place and stand your ground. So that kind of happened involuntarily. But my thing is, how many people out there now are willing to put their life on the line and say, we got to make this kind of sacrifice? You know, I don't think we're there yet. I would love to see it, but I just don't know if we're there yet. And we're not going to have all the answers in one episode. Stay tuned. (laughs) So that's going to be it for today's episode, guys. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. This was a definitely uh, heavy episode, but I feel like it's definitely necessary, especially with the climate that's going on. And yeah, thank you for just being here and just listening. And if you haven't seen 13 Documentary, please, please, please go on Netflix and watch it. It is really good. I actually want to see it again. It was amazing. I stopped it several times, repeat certain parts because I was just like... There were certain parts where I was blown away and there's things that I already knew, but definitely check it out when you have time. So please follow us guys on our Instagram account. It's underscore unapologetically underscore different. Also follow us on Twitter at unapologetic two underscores D. And you can also send us an email at unapologetically different 
at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, and we love you guys. Bye.